Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 39. Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell." Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. Now, in our study tonight, we're going to unpack some more truth from this large passage that we began to study the last time we were together, which was almost a month ago. Look at, again at verses 24 and 25. We see Jesus saying that the servants should not, shouldn't expect to be treated any different than their master or their teacher. Look what he says. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, and I'll talk about that in just a second, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, some of you may or may not know, but the cruise that's coming up that, that we're going to be having for the ministry, and I'm going to be teaching on the theme in the, in the, the series of messages are on the how much more passages of Scripture. As I began to prepare for them, I came to realize there were way more passages than we could cover on a cruise study. And this is one of those we're not going to get to cover but again, there's all through the scriptures, there's so many passages that talk about how much more. We're going to reference another one possibly later in our study. Uh, but look at what he says. He says, if they've said that I have a demon, that's what it means when he says, if they called the master of the house Beelzebul. That's the term for Satan. They, they were accusing Jesus of doing what he did by the power of Satan. And I'm going to show you a couple of passages. But as we do that, let me just remind you, listen to what he says. If they have the nerve and the gall, and the boldness to accuse God himself, who took on flesh, of being insane and having demons empower them, how much more will they have the boldness to say that about us? Don't be surprised that the world doesn't like you. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit. Go with me to uh, John chapter 8. Let me show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 8, look at verses 48 through 59. Some of you may or may not know this, but they literally straight up told Jesus that he had a demon. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. 
Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I have. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So here we clearly see, did they say that he had a demon? Who were they saying you have a demon to? Christ, who is? God himself. Listen again to what Jesus said. He said, don't expect the servant to be above his master or the disciple above his teacher. If they say that I've had a demon, how much more will they think you're nuts? Yet we in the world today, in the church, unfortunately, is a better way to put it. We in the church try to make the world think we want them to like us. Jesus said they're not going to. You got to understand that. I want to talk to you real quick about something and then we'll come back to this Jesus being accused of being a, having a demon because there's something here that a lot of you might be surprised at as well. And we'll get back to that in a second. But in Matthew chapter nine, we saw where Jesus said that the fields are white into harvest, but the laborers are few. Right. And you remember God was showing us that. There's not he's not saying there's not enough laborers. But that the laborers are going to be few, meaning if you go back to chapter eight of Matthew, Jesus said, why is the path that goes to destruction and many go that way and narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And what? How many find it? Only a few find it. He just said in chapter eight that only a few are going to be saved. So we shouldn't be surprised that even though the fields are white under harvest, that there are only a few laborers. Because there's only a few that are going to be saved anyway. We shouldn't be surprised that there's only going to be a few that he's going to use. We've had this mindset that thinks there's not enough laborers. We need to have more people out there working. And what we've just said was, God's not able to get it done without us. We need to do a better job. Oh, folks, you've lost sight of how big God is when you think he needs waiting on us. Actually, if you look at the stories in the scriptures, you'll see that God kept using the few to give himself the most glory. Remember Gideon? How Gideon was rounded up by God to fight against, lead the nation of Israel against the Midianites. And the Bible says there were so many Midianites, you couldn't count their camels. And then God empowers Gideon and he rounds up 32,000 men. And then God says to him, you got too many now. Anybody that wants to go home can go home. 22,000 go home. There's 10,000 left. God says, you still got too many. Have them all go down and take a drink by the water. And uh, those who drink in this manner are the ones I've chosen. Y'all remember how many God used? 300. He actually did his greatest work with what? The few. Don't fall into this mindset of we need to do a better job and we need to work harder and we need to do more. That actually falls into now all of a sudden we start thinking, well, we're not getting the results and we want to see the world change for Jesus. Does the Bible say the world's going to be changed for Jesus? Or does the Bible say that many's going to go to destruction and few are going to be those who find eternal life? And in doing so, we got to keep in mind that we aren't to try to make them accept us and like us. We're not trying to be offensive. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit tonight. 
But we need to understand that Jesus said very clearly, if they say I have a demon, how much more will the world be bold enough to reject you and say, well, you, I keep using this term insane. Let me show you a couple of things. Go back to John. You're in John chapter 8. Let me go to John chapter 10. Look at John chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is what? It, mad or some of your translations say what? Insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So they're, they're, they're debating about him now. But some people thought not only does he have a demon, they thought he's insane. I'm going to say something to you that some of you may know and some of you may not. Did you know that his own family thought he was insane? Did you know that Mary, at a point, thought he might be insane? That's a shocker to us. But go with me to Mark. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Go to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Then he, this is Jesus, went home. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. If you were to jump down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. That's the story when they say, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he points to the people that believe. Mary and his brothers at this point even thought he was out of his mind. You remember the end of our passage in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, um, for those who follow me, sometimes it's going to divide households. There are going to be some that accept and some that believe and some that don't. And there's going to be division in, even in your family. It's a tough one. But we need to understand that that is the case. And we keep saying, well, what can we do to make that not the case? What can we do to make Jesus wrong? No, I want let the scripture speak. Folks, and we're going to talk about this later. I'm not asking you to go out and be offensive and be a jerk because they're not going to like you. But at the same time, you need to understand this is a spiritual battle that's going on. And it's not tied to how well you do it or what you do. You can't change their hearts or change their minds. Only God can do that. There's an interesting story in the book of Acts, near the end of the book of Acts, where Paul's in Rome and he's in prison. And, and while he's there in Rome, some of the Jews in Rome hear that he's there. And so they, they all come and they want to hear from him. And they said, we have, we've heard some things not so good about this Christian faith, but we haven't heard anything bad about you. So talk to us. And he spends the whole day preaching to them. And at the end of the time, half of the room believed and the other half went away angry. Did he say it wrong to certain half? And right? No. He said the same words to the whole group. And some responded that, hey, you know what? This is of God. Others said he's nuts. Don't lose sight of this truth, folks. And I put in my notes here. Why do we then today put so much emphasis into being accepted by the world? Why do we try to design our church services in a way to appease the world? And then I also put down here, even, in, even, even if we do understand that our message is an offense, unfortunately that causes some of us to stop sharing the message. No. Just because they're not going to like it and just because they're going to reject it, don't make, let that cause you to say, well, I won't tell them then. Go to John chapter 15. Look at verses 18 through 21. 
John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen to what he says next. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. I want to share with you a verse that some of you probably have never seen before. Go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And the reason why I say it's one you probably haven't seen before is because I have not heard very many preachers preach on this verse right here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 12. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me read that to you again. Indeed. Certainly, you can count on it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. By the way, how many of you read that and got excited? None of us. <laughs> That's, that doesn't sound like fun. But remember, Jesus himself knew what he was coming to go through and how he was going to be rejected. The Bible says in the Gospel of John, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. We have to understand that as we live in this world, we're strangers, we're aliens. And if we fall prey to the mindset of how can we make this palatable, how can we get them to like us, you're gonna, it's going to cause you to compromise on the truth. It's going to cause you to uh, maybe not share the truth. And I just want to say to you, and we use the Lord hopefully to say to you, look, in this life you're going to face persecution because of your faith and your walk with Jesus Christ. And honestly, you even might experience it in the church. Because not everybody that claims to be a Christian is actually a Christian. Paul had to deal with that. The whole book of Galatians is actually dealing with that because there were those in the church who were actually attacking others in the church who were trying to live by the Spirit and they were trying to put them back under the law. Again, there's going to be a struggle in this world. So if I just shared with you that if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're going to face persecution. You've got a couple of choices, don't you? First choice is, then forget it. I don't want to go through that. The other choice is, okay, Lord, then I'm not excited about that. But if that is your plan for me, I want to embrace it. But then what must we do in order to live in that mindset? We must live with a constant yielding to him and pray and ask for his grace and ask for his. Well, remember when Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate said, don't you realize I have the authority to either have you released or to have you put to death? Jesus calmly stood there and said, you would have no authority over me unless it were given to you from above. Folks, I want you to understand as we go a little bit further into our study in Matthew tonight, that not only are we to not fear man, we're to also trust in God at the same time. That's what we're going to do. I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, uh, well, let's, let's chase something for a second. The Bible says that the message of the gospel of salvation, of there being only one way to be saved, and that through faith alone in the finished work of Christ on the cross, the Bible says that's an offense to the world. It's an offense to the world. Does anybody know why it's an offense to the world? They see their sin, or they bless the light, and they don't like it. They live the darkness more than light. Uh, that's definitely a big part of it, Mark. If you were to write these verses down and look at them later on, Galatians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul talks about the cross being an offense. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, again, it talks about how Jesus is an offense, a stumbling stone. But there's a couple of reasons why this message of the gospel, that there's only one way to be saved, and that's through faith alone in Jesus Christ. There's a couple of reasons why that's an offense to the world. Number one is it's because it's, this gospel says that the world are sinners and guilty before God, just as we are. And I want to remind you, it's really easy, having been saved, to forget that we, too, were just as guilty as the world. We a lot of times think, well, no, I'm saved and I never was as bad as them. No, the Bible says you were. You've done it all. You're guilty as if you broke it all. James 2.10. Okay. But the gospel says that the world is, are sinners and guilty before God. If the world today, if you ask most people, are you guilty before God? What do they say? No, I'm, I'm a good person. Their flesh wants credit. Oh, by the way, that flesh that wants credit in the lost world, you still struggle with as well, even though you're born again. And your flesh wants credit. Your flesh wants glory on a daily basis as well. And it's offensive to your flesh still, even though you're saved, to be saved and to let God live his life through you. There's also the, the second reason is that the gospel also says that they can do nothing to save themselves. How many people think that they can say enough of these uh, words or climb so many stairs on their knees or do so many different things and they can be good or fast long enough and they can be approved before God. The flesh wants credit. That's an offense to the world because the world wants to have some glory. Now in the next set of verses though, go back to Matthew chapter 10. We see Jesus continues his teaching about not fearing man but fearing God. Look at verses 26 through 33. He says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, interestingly enough, we're going to come back to why in just a little bit. He then goes on and says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you have more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who's in heaven. So here Jesus says, I don't want you to fear man. The, who the worst, the worst they can do to you is kill your body, but they have no control over your soul. Who you should fear is the one who has the authority to throw your body and soul into hell. Y'all know who that is, right? It's God. It's God. As I travel around and preach at different churches in the country, I'll ask that question. You'd be surprised how many churches say Satan. Satan doesn't have the keys to hell. Who has the keys to hell? Jesus does. He died. He defeated him at the cross. He rose from the dead. All authority has been given to him. And he even says, I hold the keys to death in Hades. The one who has the authority to throw you into hell is God himself, Jesus. And that's the one you should fear. He says, don't fear man. Don't be afraid of what man thinks or what man says. You live in this world with no fear of man, but a fear of God. That's what we're going to spend a lot of time on tonight. The difference between fearing man and fearing God and what it really means to fear God. Uh, let me give you a couple of verses. Let me say a couple of things to you here along this line. We all struggle with this in one way or another. I'm just going to tell you, even preachers struggle with this. We all struggle with the fear of man. Now, some of you say, I don't care what man thinks. 
I'm going to show you in just a little bit that you still struggle with a fear of man and not a fear of God. If your attitude is, I don't care what man thinks. Because there's more to it than just not caring what man thinks. And go to Proverbs chapter 29. In Proverbs chapter 29, look at verses 25 and 26. Proverbs 29, verse 25 and 26 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. One way that we fear man more than God is when we we trust man more than we trust God. Look closely at these verses. He said, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So here we see that fearing Man and trusting in man are the same thing. Fearing God and trusting in God, you're going to see in a little bit later, are the same thing. And then he goes on, he says, many seek the face of a ruler, but it's from the Lord that a man gets justice. Why do people sometimes seek the face of a ruler? To get a judgment. And because in their mind, that person has the power and authority to do something about their problem. Why is that a snare? Why is that a trap? That's what it means. To put your trust in man is a trap. There's a couple of reasons. There's actually many. Go ahead, Glenn. Man's mortal. And he doesn't have all authority. There you go. You got them both. You see how that's a trap to trust in man? Man's going to die. You put your trust in man, that guy's going to die one day. Now what are you going to do? You also put your trust in man. He doesn't have the full authority to actually handle things as much as you thought. God actually does. You put your trust in God. So when you trust in man more than you trust God, you actually fear man more than you fear God. Now, I've shared with some of you this story. Some of you maybe haven't heard it, but a few years ago, I went to the P.O. box for the ministry and there wasn't any checks. And when the check, we we live off of donations to the ministry. And so when the checks come in, you feel good because, hey, there's money. And then when the checks aren't there, I I think some of you might experience some of that same kind of thing with your jobs. And you feel good when the bank account's got money and you feel bad when the bank account doesn't. And anybody else like me go through this cycle of, man, hey, we got money in the bank. Oh, no, we're in trouble. Hey, we got money in the bank. Hey, we're in trouble. I got tired of it. And I said, Lord, all it takes to run this ministry is a little over 100,000 a year. I don't get all that, but that covers travel expenses, publishing, all that stuff. I said, Lord, for some Christian millionaire out there, that's pocket change. I'm tired of being like this. Could you please have a Christian millionaire call me up and say, Jim, don't ever worry about money ever again. I personally will make sure you have all the ministry needs. You go preach. Man, and I prayed in faith, buddy, because I mean, you you believe it, God's got to do it. Actually, five minutes later, five minutes later, as I was driving away from the P.O. box, God spoke to my heart and he said, why didn't you believe me when I made you the same promise? Hasn't he promised that he'd meet all of our needs? Hasn't he promised that he'd never leave us nor forsake us? And then he opened my eyes to a couple of things. He said, you would believe it if a man says it more than you'd believe it if if I said it. That's what he was showing me. And then on top of that, he said, oh, and by the way, let's just say a millionaire calls you up and says, don't worry, I'll take care of the ministry. He's going to die one day. And then what are you going to do? When we trust in man... More than we trust in God, we fear man more than we fear God. I want you to write this down. I'm going to give you a biblical definition of fear. 
that will help you as we move forward and hopefully in the rest of your life. Because you're going to see the scripture says we're to fear God. To fear someone is to give them honor and reverence and authority in our lives. The biblical definition of fear is to honor someone and to give them reverence and authority in our lives. We fear man when we think that they have more power over our lives to harm us than God does to protect us. Remember how I shared with you how Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate said, don't you know I have the authority to have you put to death or released? And he actually thought that God's protection of him was greater than man's ability to harm him. And he said, I'm not worried about you. My eyes are on the Father. Go to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, look at verses 1 through 7. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear who, sorry, what can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. When you actually think man has more power to harm you than God does to protect you, you fear man more than you fear God. Years ago, many, many years ago, when I was pastor in Chicago, it's been over 20 years, I was a young preacher, barely 30 years old. I'd never been senior pastor of a church before, and God had moved us in the, the story of all that God did to get us to be broken and willing to go where he wanted us to go. It's too long to tell, but when we got to that little church in Chicago, within six months of us being there, I got word that one of the head deacons in that church had called a little private meeting in the living room of his house of some church members and said, we're going to run that guy off. Now, I'd only been there six months. I'd never been senior pastor before. My wife and I at the time had one child living in a parsonage next door to the church. We had nothing. We had one vehicle. We had no... Equity, because we've been living in trailer on the seminary campus while I was in seminary or government assisted housing while I was working at the pre previous church. And now we're living in somebody else's house and we got nothing. And only six months into our pastorate there in Chicago, I got word that this man was having a private meeting with people in the church and they had decided they were going to run me off. I got scared. I went into my office and I got on my knees and I cried out and said, God, help. You know what he said to me that night? He said, this is the best thing that ever happened to you. Because look at what it made you do. It made you turn to me. Then he also said something interesting. He said, don't pray that that man dies. Because <laughs> he said, I will put someone else just like him, even if he does die. I'm going to put someone else just like him to keep you relying on me. Isn't that what? Paul heard when he prayed three times for the thorn in his side to go away. No, I'm going to leave it there. Folks, we keep wanting a life with no struggle. It's the struggle that God's using to get us to fear him and to trust him. When you trust, when you believe that man has more power to harm you than God does to protect you, you fear man more than you fear God. 
We fear man more than God when we also want their approval more than God's approval. And boy, let me just tell you, that's one of the biggest struggles that pastors have. As I deal with pastors around the country, unfortunately, I deal with pastors who are struggling with pornography and all sorts of stuff. You'd be amazed how many pastors struggle with all this stuff that you think the pastor never struggles with. Oh, they struggle with lots of stuff. But one of the greatest struggles that pastors have is a fear of man because so many pastors are more interested in keeping everybody happy than actually following God. And by the way, you fuel it because without realizing it, you all have preferences and you all tell the pastor how you would like it to be. Go to Acts chapter four. What a blessing you would be to your pastors of the churches you go to if you would honestly keep reminding him what we care about more is that you do what God says than whether or not you keep me happy. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak, but speak of what we have seen and heard. But when they had further and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man in whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Here in this situation, they said, you decide. Are we supposed to listen to man or are we supposed to listen to God? Are we supposed to seek man's approval or are we supposed to seek God's approval? And by the way, do you, who were they talking to when they said, asked that question? Does anybody know who that group was, this council that they're meeting with? Sanhedrin. Does anybody know specifically what this group of people had just done a few weeks earlier? They were the ones who had put Jesus to death and had the legal trials and condemned him and had him put to death. This is a powerful group of folks. And they boldly able to look them in the face and say, hey, guys, you're supposed to be spiritual men. You're supposed to be religious leaders. You tell us, are we supposed to listen to you or are we supposed to listen to God? You decide. But let me say something to you. To have an I don't care what man thinks attitude is not trusting in God. You could sit here tonight and think, well, you know what? I'm just going to get this thick skin and I'm going to be a jerk and I don't care what people think. And I'm just going to be me and I'm going to be bold and I'm going to preach the gospel and I don't care. And I'm just going to go out and I don't care if they listen. I don't care if they hear. I don't I, Having an I don't care if man, what man thinks attitude is not fearing God. You know who you're really fearing now? Yourself. Which is still fearing in man. I want to show you in this passage. You need to not only say I'm not going to have them have more authority in my life than they're supposed to have. I need to go to God. 
To fear God is to go to God. Listen to what happens next in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's one thing to turn away from seeking man's approval or trusting in man. It's a totally different thing to turn to God for his protection and his approval. Otherwise, you'll be simply trusting in yourself. I've run into too many Christians who are offensive. Well, Jim, the Bible says that the gospel's offensive. You said it yourself tonight. No, the gospel's offensive. Christians aren't supposed to be. The Bible says we're supposed to be loving, merciful, compassionate. We're actually to share the love of Christ. Jesus himself, when he was on the earth, and we have been sent into the world just as he was, said, I don't condemn, I don't judge. I just share with you the gospel. I just share with you the good news. I share with you the, the offer of salvation. If you believe it, great. If you don't, that's between you and the Father. Yet we, as Christians, unfortunately, have become known of being judgmental and condemning and self-righteous. And we'll go stand on the street corner. We don't care what you think. We're just going to tell you. No, don't be offensive. The gospel's an offense all by itself. You be loving. But look at how these men didn't seek man's approval more than God's, but they also went to God and sought his power, his grace, his boldness, his ability to, to take care of them. Now, back in Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 33, in the section that we've been looking at and we're kind of pulling this all out of, Jesus is speaking to them mainly, though, about fearing God for our eternal destinies. Look at verse 28 again. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The context, as much as we've looked at all the different types of, well, not all, but many of the different types of fear of man. The context here, though, is when it comes to our eternal destiny. This is the first fear of God that we must have, the scripture says, because it's the beginning of wisdom. And because of time and how much we still have to get covered up to stay even with the group in, uh, from Tuesday night, I'm going to give you some scriptures and I want you to write them down and go look at them later on. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. You need to have a fear of God, of his judgment power, his ability to throw your body and soul into hell because of your sin. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's knowledge of his holiness is, is understanding. But when we understand his holiness and our lack thereof, we're to respond appropriately to our fear of his judgment and respond with a holy fear response. By the way, does anybody know what a holy fear response is? 
I told you to write it down. To give him honor and reverence and what? And authority in your life. Let me see. How many of you remember your college days when you took psychology? Does anybody remember taking psychology? Do you remember the fight or flight thing they taught you in psychology? I'm actually going to show you that scripturally, and again, I'm going to give you scriptures to go look at and double check me later on, that actually there are three responses to fear. We've been learned about the fight or flight. I think the Bible teaches there are actually three. We know the fight response is when fear comes, we want to respond back and fight, fight back. And write this down and look later on and you'll see. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Joshua 2, verses 8 through 13. We see the story of the spies going into Jericho. They meet Rahab and she shares with them and says, A fear of you and your God has come across our people. What was the reaction of the Jerichoans, if you will, to that fear? They still tried to fight Israel. By the way, how'd that work out? If you try to fight God, who's going to win? So that response is not the proper response of fear. The fight response is no good. We also know there's a flight response or to hide or to run. And right at the end down, Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. Genesis 3, 6 through 11, we see that Adam and Eve, the moment they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from, all of a sudden something happened to them spiritually, and all of a sudden they were separated from God because of that. And they hear him walking, and when they hear him, what did they do? They hid. They write, they ran, the flight. By the way, can you, can you hide from God? No, there's nowhere you can go that he's not there. That won't do you any good. There's also a third response. It's in the Bible. And also the deer have taught us this response. You ever heard the term deer in the headlights? The deer don't fight. The deer don't run. What do they do? They do nothing. Let me tell you, that's not going to do you any good either. Go. Again, write it down. Look at it later on. Matthew 25, verses 24 through 30. The third servant in the parable of the talents said that he was afraid. And so he did nothing. Folks, listen to me. God says, I want everyone in this world to fear me when it comes to their judgment. The fact that I have the authority to throw your body and your soul into hell. A knowledge of my holiness and your lack thereof, that's the beginning of wisdom. I want the world to be afraid of what I could do to them. He wants that. Because that begins the right re relationship. But if you try to fight him, you're going to lose. You just try to hide, you, you're never going to get anywhere because he can see you. And if you stand there and do nothing, that's not going to do you any good. Ask the deer. But there is a proper fear response. That is to run to him. And give him honor and reverence and authority in your life. By the way, that's what Rahab did. She had the same fear as the rest of the people in Jericho. But she said, your God's my God. What does he want? And folks, listen closely to me. The Bible says that we're to still fear God. We've already said, read a couple of my, if we have time, show you a couple more. But how do we fear God on a daily basis? We no longer fear his punishment. Let me show you what that means. Go to 1 John chapter 4. We no longer fear God and his punishment. 1 John 4 is very clear about that. Look at verses 13 through 18. First John chapter four, verse 13, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses or agrees that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we also in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has, this type of fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Folks, once you run to him, and you say, you're God, and I'm not. You're the Holy One, and I'm not. And I need you to fix it, and I give you full authority in my life, and you give your life to God through faith alone in what Jesus did. You become his child, and that's why Jesus said to them in Matthew 10, I'm going to tell you who you should fear. You should fear the one who has the authority to throw your body and soul into hell. But then immediately goes and says, but you're of more value than many sparrows. Don't be afraid. Luke actually brings that out even more. Go to Luke chapter 12. Luke's account, Jesus, I'm just going to say it. Jesus almost sounds a little psychotic in Luke 12. Go to Luke 12 and look at verses 4 through 7. In Luke chapter 12, look at verses 4 through 7. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do unless they're an undertaker. That was a bad joke and nobody laughed. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You're of more value than many sparrows. Why in the world does Jesus say, fear me, don't be afraid? Fear me, don't be afraid. I'm sorry? He's talking to two different groups of people. But those who are not in a right relationship with him, you better be afraid. Have you ever noticed the angels, whenever they appeared to believers, they would, first thing they said was what? Do not be afraid. By the way, do you see the angels saying don't be afraid to the guards at the tomb? You almost picture the angels showing up at the, at the tomb saying, be afraid, be very afraid. And the Bible says they fell as dead men. They were so afraid. They passed out. There's a difference between those who are outside of the right relationship with God and those who are in the right relationship with God. And for those of us who have come to know and believe the love that he has for us, we still fear him. But we don't fear his judgment anymore. By the way, one of those how much more passages that we're going to cover on the cruises in Romans 5, where Paul, God through Paul points out in Romans 5 that if when we were his enemy, he sent his son to die for us, how much more will we be, will we be saved from his wrath through Jesus Christ? So, folks, as Christians, we need to fear God, but it's a different type of fear now. It's no longer a fear of his punishment. It's no longer a fear of his judgment. He's not mad at you. He's not angry with you. He's poured all of his wrath for all of your sin on his son already at the cross. Now you're in a right relationship with him. Everything that comes to you from the hand of God comes from his hand of love. And I want you to see from the scriptures, passage we've already looked at, and also another one I'm going to show you, that we now give him reverence, and honor 
and full authority in our lives, not because we're afraid he's going to get us if we don't, but because, listen closely, because we're afraid we might miss out on some of the good stuff that he has for us. Go back to Psalm 118. I'm not sure how many of you caught it. In Psalm 118, where it says, fear the Lord, look at verse 4. Let those who fear the Lord say what? His steadfast love endures forever. Go back to verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron, the priest, say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. I hope none of you that are here tonight or listening online to this are like the third servant who see him as a hard man. Harvesting where he hadn't sowed or gathering where he hadn't scattered seed and you're so afraid you do nothing. Listen to me, though the third servant had no relationship with the father and that's why he was cast out. Too many Christians today have fallen prey to the enemy's lies. Listen to me, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation and he loves you. Oh, he's still going to discipline and teach and train and shape us. And sometimes that's not always pleasant, but he's never angry. He's never mad. He's not making you pay for what you've done, because if he's making you pay for things you've done after you've been saved, Jesus didn't pay the full price. And the Bible's clear he paid the full price. But we fear him, we give him honor, and we give him reverence. Why? Because he's good. We give him authority in our lives because he's good. Go with me to Psalm 34. Go to Psalm 34. I heard somebody back there quoting it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, you sing this one as well. Look at Psalm 34. Look at verses 1 through 15. Listen to what it says. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who what? Fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. Let me teach you the fear of the Lord. Do what he says. That's it. That's what he says. Let me give him honor. Get him from re give him reverence and give him authority in your life. Just do what he says. Trust him. Rely on him and watch. And folks, I'm not a health and wealth preacher. I don't believe the Bible teaches everybody's supposed to be a millionaire and nobody's supposed to get sick or die. But at the same time, I am realizing and we're experiencing it ourselves that the more you 
really, really walk with the Lord, the more he blesses. He is generous. He's a good father. By the way, there's another one of those how much more passages we're going to study on the cruise. Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to his children? Years ago, when I was early in my parenting, I was the wrong kind of a father. I was more interested in the rules and the regulations, and I wanted them to fear me this way. I thought if I could scare them into behavior or make sure they kept the rules that they would end up right. But by the way, what does the law produce? The law produces sin. It fuels sin. And God began to do a work. I did a study called Grace Walk many, many years ago. And God began to teach me about grace and what he, how he treats me as my father. And it changed me as a parent. My wife will tell you, 15 years ago, it changed everything in our life as a family. And all of a sudden, it was no longer about the law. It was about building a relationship and letting them know that I loved them. And I stopped being a dad who spent all my time correcting and pointing out the errors and trying to get them to behave. And I began to pour out my love and treats and blessings. And then when it was time that they needed correction, I had already proven that I loved them. And they heard it for what it was. You see, before, I thought I was showing my love by pointing out all the things they did wrong, because I wanted to help. But did they hear love, or did they hear condemnation and judgment? Folks, taste and see that the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Jesus, in the middle of saying to those who don't know him, you better be afraid. It also at the same time speaks to those of us who do know him and says, hey, um, you're of more value than many sparrows. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, but fear me. To fear me is to give me honor and reverence and full authority in your life. Unfortunately, too many Christians have been worked over by passages in the book of Hebrews. If you ever do a study of the book of Hebrews, you'll realize that here he'll be talking about how you have an anointing and you, you, you know the Holy One, and then immediately goes into, but watch out. You ever notice that the book of Hebrews does that? Anybody else? And I deal with too many people, and I, and I mean this sincerely, too many Christians who are writing me emails and sending me things because they're afraid that they might have lost their salvation or God's going to get them. And, because it says right there, look where it says it. And, and I have to show them, look, whenever God is speaking to a group of people, there's going to be those in the room who need to be afraid. There's going to be others in the room who don't have to fear his judgment. And you and I don't know who they are. It's the Holy Spirit who does his work. So I say to you tonight as we close. If you're in a right relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, listen closely. And he's confirmed that you're his child through the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 16 that he's given us of his spirit. His, testify, his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're his children. If he's confirmed that you're his because he's given you his spirit. Take a deep breath and don't ever fear his judgment or his wrath ever again. Don't be afraid in that way. But give him honor and give him reverence. 
and give him full authority in your life. And I promise you, watch how he takes care of you and will deliver you from all of your troubles. He doesn't say you won't have any more troubles. But I promise you that as he orchestrates these troubles in your lives, he will take you through them and out of them and you'll come out blessed and stronger. You know how I can say that to you? Because God himself says it all throughout the Bible. He says when it comes to giving, he said, test me in this. In Malachi chapter 3, see if I won't open the windows of heaven. I want you to give to me first. See if I won't bless you financially if you trust me and you give when I tell you to give and how I tell you to give. And be generous like I tell you. Watch. He also says in the book of Luke, I think it's chapter 6, he talks about how he's going to pour it into our lap and it's just going to overflow. Folks, listen to me. He's a good God. But some of you are still struggling with some of these issues financially or health or worries and different things. And you keep falling back into the, this mindset of God's mad at me and he's punishing me because I've made wrong choices or all this stuff. No. He's actually trying to get you to see that he's good. How can he be getting me to see that he's good by having me go through this stuff? Let's close tonight with Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 3. Sorry, we'll start with verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation. Some of your translations say encouragement. Hebrews 12 verse 5. Some of you have forgotten, you've forgotten the exhortation or encouragement that addresses you as sons. And he quotes from Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines, teaches, trains, shapes the one he loves. And he chastises, corrects every son whom he receives. It's for discipline. It's for teaching. It's for training that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, as children. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not? Man, there's another one of those much more passages. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his what? His holiness. Now for, all the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You see it? He's good. And he wants you to fear him. But he doesn't want you to fear him like the world should fear him. That fear should be gone. Perfect love casts out that kind of fear. Because that has to do with punishment. But those of us who know him, he says, I don't want you to be afraid of me like that ever again. But I want you to fear me by giving me honor, reverence, and authority in your life. And watch how you will then experience what a good daddy I am. Can't wait to share with you some more. We'll pick it up next week. I love you. Thanks for coming.